New Jersey is providing truly historic tax relief. Living in New Jersey is about to become more affordable under the new Anchor Property Tax Relief Program created by Governor Murphy and the legislature. The state will soon deliver over 2 billion in tax relief to more than 2 million homeowners and renters. Eligible New Jerseyans can receive up to 1500 apply today even if you didn't qualify under the previous program you may now the deadline is february 28 visit anchor.nj.gov hey migrantly family it's sadia khan ringing in the new year with an exciting array of episodes to keep you warm these next chilly months if you're new welcome Beyond building community, this podcast is interested in democratizing the stories of immigrants. As one myself, I know all too well how easily these experiences get pigeonholed or sidelined. So every week I sit down with a guest to discuss anything and everything that falls under their immigrant experience or rather their human experience. Before we start, I recognize that a new year evokes excitement for some but is also a transition others dread. Personally, I don't see how the clock striking midnight in a new calendar year should be the impetus for change. Change is from within and certainly non-linear. So, if you're feeling pressured to pick a new hobby, learn to code journal every morning and pursue these marketed characteristics of success, well, I am here to say slow down and ask yourself Are you doing this for you or are you doing this because our hustle culture says so? Today I'm joined by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer, co-founders and co-hosts of the Mashup American podcast which basically features stories and interviews on the things that make us who we are, culture, relationships and identity. I feel a kindred spirit for these two since immigrantly bears many similarities the mashup american has been telling stories from zany ones on ginger being the old school viagra yes you heard that right to thorny topics like sickness and death underlying these tales is the commitment to navigating the complexities of what they call mashup identity In fact, this hyphenated hat is what brought Amy and Rebecca together to create Mashup. Amy, who is Korean American, has worked in journalism for over 20 years at places including Bloomberg, Ted L, and Teen Vogue. Rebecca, who is Salvadoran Jewish, has spent her career doing strategy, marketing, and audience development for companies like New York Public Radio and the Headlands Center for the Arts. Today's interview is focused on their most recent series on grief. We basically talk about what grief actually is, how we can understand it without overpathologizing it, and why it's both universal and personal. What I loved most about the conversation is that we explored, we kept it light, and we kept it real. So let's get started. So Amy Rebecca welcome to Immigrantly. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm so excited. So just an FYI, this episode will release in the next year. Mm -hmm. But we are having this conversation towards the end of 2022. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are a lot of thoughts going through our minds and we're thinking about what has happened during this year, what could have happened. There's a lot of stuff going on around us and within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe grief and celebration happening at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this conversation is so timely. I was listening to your series and I was blown away. But then I also have so many questions and thoughts. But before we delve into that, I wanted to start at the concept or the idea, how it developed, and what were your thoughts about grief before the series, mm. and how do you define grief now? Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening and engaging. It's like all we want to do is talk about the questions people have about it. So this is a great joy, especially with another mashup woman, because I think one of the things that we're you know, in defining what a mashup is, right? Being first generation or an immigrant, navigating a culture that's different than the one that your family is from or was from and maybe marrying somebody or in partnership with somebody who's in different cultural background and all that beautiful and complex stuff that actually I think what we have identified in the nearly 10 years of doing our work and thinking about our lives and our community and this demographic in this way is that some of the things that we joke about and think about like guilt, <laughs> like the guilt trips our families play or the way food has kind of become mashup. You know, I joke about thinking one of the early things for us in the mashup Americans was I thought my mom made, you know, Jewish chicken soup, but it has like lime and cilantro because my mom is from Latin America, but her parents are Jews from Germany. And I took me literally until, <laughs> I don't know, age 30 to realize it was a Latin thing. Huh. It was a Latin soup, not a Jewish soup. You know, I didn't understand how much that was a part of all of my identities. So I say this in that to point out, I think a lot of what we've explored, even through joy and humor and love and living, is some grief and some loss that we as children of immigrants or as immigrants have been wrestling with as we try to understand who we are. So that's sort of the big picture, I think, of what the mashup Americans and our relationship to conversations about loss and grief are. So this sort of ambiguous loss and then also some of the more intense experience for our families who were escaping persecution and then in our own lives, just like being alive and experiencing both personal death loss and then, you know, just a mass casualty event of the last several years. Hmm. So it's this combination of, of layers of loss, right? And, and it's what we explore in this series, right, which is both what is it actually what is grief to us? What does it feel like in our bodies? And then what is it in our communities? And what is it collectively in within our families? And then how might we kind of explore different ways of having healthier relationships to it? But Amy can talk about how grief has changed in definition for her. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the expansion, we understood kind of in our bodies and our souls that grief was more than even the profound experience of being bereaved, like losing a loved one, but that grief was about any sort of like fundamental loss to your identity, hmm. something that was so meaningful to you that it was it was part of who you are. And I think that can be cultural, that can be a relationship, that can be a faith practice. 
It can be a relationship. It can be so many things. And that also grief is about love. It's about the transformation of what happens to a love that is lost or that is no longer part of your life, whether again, that's a person or like another living creature or again, you know, an idea. And I think that what was really profound for us in the final episode of our series with Adrienne Marie Brown is that we also talked about what it meant to mourn things that don't even serve us. It doesn't necessarily even have to be love, but that's where I think that piece about identity is really critical, where we were talking about what does it mean to mourn like systems that are dying under us. Maybe the systems weren't things that serve us well, but that they are what we know. And so you still need to grieve that in order to create what is to come next or to be able to kind of process and metabolize all of your learnings and and what the grief kind of transforms you into. And so that has been like a really large expansion in our definition from grief, which we had experienced in different ways before. But that piece about identity and love and how some, you know, sometimes those two things intersect, sometimes they don't. But those are like the two biggest boundaries around grief that we have found, like as we've gone through the process of reporting this series. Wait, I have to follow up just for your listeners to understand that I have a jacket on my head to make my sound good. And it really adds <laughs> a layer of richness to the Zoom where we're seeing each other. Uh, we are very much in like some sort of Godot production right now. The absurdity levels of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> So Amy and Rebecca, there's so much to unpack with grief. And I love how you acknowledged, even during the series, that grief is more than death or physical loss, right? Mm. So it's loss of maybe an opportunity, Mm. loss of Mm -hmm. friendship, loss of something that was, that a lot Mm -hmm. of people grapple with. And then it's experienced by so many living creatures. Mm. What we've seen is that grief has always been so human-centric that a lot of people in their conscious mind don't associate grief or how it's processed with other living creatures. And I really liked your conversation with Dr. Dorothy Hollinger where she explains how animals experience grief and different versions of grief. So tell me, when we do this, when we try to explain a process that you guys have unraveled now through human perspective, a lot Mm. of people still do that. What do you think we lose? That is such an excellent question. And that was also a piece of this reporting and exploration that really moved us and was transformative. Truly, the amount of scream texting that Amy and I did to each other we're like, did you know this animal grieves this way? And I think for me, at least, and I'm excited to hear how Amy responds to this, but and in that episode is we entered into thinking about how does grief live in our body? That was sort of the bigger idea there. But the reason that it's so relevant how animals grieve is because we are animals and so much of society, of human society, is structured to kind of pretend it away you know, pretend we're not going to die, pretend we don't all poop. 
pretend, you know, whatever clothes we're wearing and bras we're wearing to hoist our boobs up and all the things that we're doing to sort of pretend we don't have bodies or especially, you know, it would have been so joyful to be together, but we're on different coasts and there's also a pandemic. So even just we're only on computers, it feels like that old thing about being a brain in a jar, but we aren't. We are humans and humans are animals. To us, that sense of perspective, for me at least, remembering that this is a natural thing to experience. And I don't mean natural like, oh my God, there's toxins in my cream. (laughs) I mean, it's nature's freaking way and it is what it means to be alive. And so to realize we are animals, to remember that, it's actually affirms me. It gives me strength because I'm part of not just a human ecosystem, but like a much, much, much bigger world that is ultimately kind of just living, loving, having babies and dying. That's just sort of the, those are the things. And so to realize that helps me put myself in a perspective that helps me. It doesn't make me feel small. It makes me feel connected, if you will. Yeah. I think that connectedness is the big thing, is just the remembering that a lot of readings and writings on grief that you'll see is like, it's it's incredibly human, right? Like to be human is to grieve. And it turns out it's not just human, is that to be alive is to grieve. I like love to have any sort of sentience whatsoever is to grieve. And that that sort of understanding that this is a truly universal, Mm -hmm. physical, emotional experience that is monumental for like species across the board is something that perspective wise, something that we lose, I think, when we think even that it's just human is that we're alone in this or that we're somehow need to figure it out ourselves. And I think something that we have seen from the kind of studies of animals in grief is that animals in grief are almost always in community. Almost every example that we can come up with is like the murder of crows that flies in and will stand next to a dead member of their flock and the crows (laughs) scream together for 15 minutes and then the crows together will fly away. If that is not like a an incredible morning ritual that human beings can be inspired by, like I don't know what is. I would like to do that. Do you guys want to go like meet to, up? I like, go scream for go 15 into minutes. nature and scream just for fifteen minutes. Yes, yeah. and then we can go about our days. But I think that there's something about understanding that maybe what humans miss in all of our like intellectualizing of everything of of all of our modernizations of things is that like ultimately what we also know from experts is that like the one commonality of grief practices throughout the world is that they're about storytelling and they're about community. And animals do this. They do this with each other when they grieve and when they mourn. And so when we can access and understand that this is a truly universal thing, I think it gives us a window into understanding that like our experience is not an individual one. It both is and it isn't, right? But that we can understand that we don't have to be isolated or alone in like the profound experience that is grief. Because when you're in it and it's acute and it's rough, it fucking sucks. Yeah. And like it's so lonely and it can feel like you're the only person that could possibly have ever felt this bad before in your life. So Amy, you bring up such an important point, but from my perspective and how I've experienced grief in my Mm -hmm. life, it's always been 
a collective endeavor. Mm-hmm. It was never an individual experience. I grew up in Pakistan, which is a collective society, and people grieve together. Mm-hmm. This idea of overanalyzing grief or mm-hmm. experiencing it in isolation is new to me. And mm-hmm. that's why when I was listening to your series, I wondered if there is cultural relevance or your conversation was more focused on Western societies versus Eastern cultures or Eastern societies. And how did you reconcile the two, if at all? I think if you looked at like our early brainstorming, like post-its on the walls, they're like, why are Americans so bad at this? Which is often how we go into a lot of different conversations. (laughs) I think that's actually like a really essential question which is why is it so different here than maybe it is in other places? And um, that's one that we pursued throughout the series. Well, particularly because our project, our work, is this idea of where we as mashups, as first-gen mm-hmm. or immigrants, are within the U.S. So, you know, I have my, you know, my family are very supportive and they'll listen, like my aunt in El Salvador. (laughs) And she reads a newsletter and she'll be like, oh, I love this. And she's very blunt as, you know, non-American people are. And she'll be like, this wasn't for me. Like, I like this, but this is just, this is so American, this part, you know, or this isn't about the show, but about other things. And I'm like, you're right. It's a mashup American. The context is this one, right? What is the pathological American need to move forward without ever dealing with anything? That's number one. Number two, why do we think we're going to live forever? Like, that's very confusing. And it's not related to any kind of theism about like, oh, because we believe in an afterlife. It's just because we don't believe, <laughs> we believe we're invincible. It's a very, or the same way that even the the idea of America, as if it's not just 270 years old or whatever it is, and that in Pakistan, my assumption is that you know you're walking down the street and there's a store there that's 700 years old. You're like this building has been here before there was a twinkle in America's eye. And so put yourself in perspective. So I think it is very much an American exploration but because we are mashup, we believe there's a way to call the wis- we know there is wisdom outside of here and that is the part of what we're doing in all of our work but particularly here is like We need to question these assumptions because it doesn't have to be that way. And we Mm. know that because we may be decontextualized here, but we come from, we are rooted in cultural practices that are different and we believe maybe are better or healthier. I like that perspective. And I want to extend this conversation and include how you deconstructed grief. So some of your episodes focus on grief, but then they also tend to give, in a way, how to instructions on how to process or metabolize grief and how different Mm. individuals do that. And as an immigrant, I have always been skeptical of how to manuals in the U.S., right? There's always how to relax, how to be happy, how to (laughs) find, you know, whatever, how to... Improve your relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is in contrast to human messiness, human rawness, Mm. right? Our emotions Mm. are so unpredictable and they are so fluid and there is no way, no matter how much I internalize some of those processes and mechanisms, I may just go back to how I've always been around grief. Mm. So my question to both of you is, how do we 
expand our conversation around grief and understanding of grief without over-pathologizing it, something that Americans do a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say one thing, even though I think we try to offer ways that either our guests um, who, you know, are psychologists and writers and people who study grief or, you know, somatic practitioners might say these are a few things that we do as part of our healing practices or what have you. We really tried to not be prescriptive about, you must do these things. And in fact, in the U.S., there's this, the Kubler-Ross, you know, five stages of grief. <laughs> Some reason, um, Americans really... We love a checklist. They love a checklist, as you said, you know, Cosmo, how to, you know, get a guy, um, how to do grief right. And it turns every one of them, the, the one piece of agreement, well, there's several, but one clear line was, that is bullshit based on nothing, and it's not real. So, <laughs> but it sells. Um, what it sells though in the U.S. It sells. Yeah. It sells. Oh, because people want. If I know the path I'm supposed to do, then I'll get it right. And we like to get things right, which is LOL, because then we get them all wrong, and <laughs> that's the situation we're in as a <laughs> as a culture. But I think what we are trying to offer in all of this is it's actually to remember how much grief is in everything. Grieving is living and grieving is love. And therefore, instead of believing that every piece of it is trauma, not to say that that isn't involved, it's normal and it's just a part of everything. By acknowledging that and saying it out loud, it's less pathologize. I think that's one of our goals here, or it turned into it by having these conversations. It's like one of our guests, George Banana, who runs the Columbia Center for Trauma, Loss, and Grief, Grief, Loss, and Trauma, one of those order, (laughs) you know, has been doing these studies for 30 years. And he was like, yeah, most people are living again in a version of that after an acute loss within six months to a year. And that's not to say that you have to be that way, but in studying humans, that's what he's observed. And so I think those are the things that we were trying to, or we ended up exploring and exposing to our listeners is that, you know, this is just, it just is. It just is. And you got to find your way through it and, and in it and embrace it because it is what it means to be alive. Yeah. I think something that was really valuable with, Thinking about, you know, how to avoid these kind of prescriptive ideas of how to heal from grief was that this understanding that grief is universal, but the experience of it to yourself could be individual, not that the grief ritual was individual, but Mm -hmm. what it was to you. You know, Natalia Skritskaya, who's another researcher from Columbia, said, if you think of any given loss, even if it's a loss that multiple people experience, you have one individual, they have like their biology, right? Their individual makeup of cellularly of who they are. And then they have their lived experience, which is also completely individual. And then they have their relationship to the person or thing that they have lost. And that is a unique relationship based on the connection between those two people. So even their sibling who lost, say... I don't know, another sibling or a parent or something or experienced a migratory loss, like we're immigrants together. That sibling is also 
a unique person with unique biology and unique lived experience and a unique relationship to that thing that they have lost. So what they are feeling and therefore just like who they are, their grief will be expressed differently or will present differently to them. You know, we really actually wrestled with this a lot because we kind of keep reading and hearing, you just have to allow for a healthy expression of grief. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. We're like, but so if every single person is different, then like, what is this healthy expression of grief? And what we came to was that the healthy expression of grief is to let grief flow. I love that. And that whatever that that meant for you was a healthy expression. And that could be between the three of us here, three completely different expressions of grief. But that if we allow it to flow through us without judgment of ourselves and with some compassion for other people who are doing it differently, then that will be what starts to relieve it and allow it to metabolize. And I think the other thing that is very much aligned with what we've been saying all along about community and and as Rebecca says about just naming it, is that scientifically, there have been studies saying that if you can name your grief, if you can name your pain, even naming it like neurologically lessens the symptoms of it. So if you were to be able to say, I feel X because of this loss, or if you are able to tie maybe your um, sleeplessness to like a grief that you are experiencing, your sleeplessness lessens in intensity because our brain is that powerful. And so again, it all comes back down to like letting it be in our bodies, letting it express itself how it needs to, and then being able to recognize and say like grief is all around us. And that doesn't mean that you have to be sad all the time. Right. It's just that accepting that like grief is like air, just the same way that we truly embrace it, like laughter or joy or that this is all possible all at the same time. But it's it's hard because like it's very scary. Do you think people avoid confronting grief or experiencing it because in some ways they think it may weaken them or it Mm. may make them susceptible susceptible or vulnerable to Mm -hmm. something, especially coming back to American society and how American society operates because vulnerability is something that I've experienced throughout my life and I've always been proud of my vulnerability in a way. Mm -hmm. Projecting that strength onto other people is something that I see quite ubiquitous in American society versus other cultures. Oh my gosh. Correct. (laughs) That's all I'll say. Also, think about anytime somebody's sick in the States. If you were to say like, I have X sickness, a friend says they have cancer. I feel like to a T, Americans will ask literally in that case, the pathology, like how did they get sick? Because then it'll somehow make it to... Did that they didn't get sick. You're like, no, this is a 35-year-old with freaking breast cancer that came from nowhere. And yeah. even if she had cigarettes when she was 18, first of all, you're not a doctor. But second <laughs> of all, what are you talking about? It's not like actually out of curiosity or support. It's out of trying to save oneself somehow, which makes me feel, if you can't tell, like truly full of rage. <laughs> But um, I'm like, no, this isn't about you. Sorry, they're sick and just be engaged. I do think it's a feeling of somehow it's toxic or somehow it'll get you sick. And I mean that in both grief, it doesn't fit the storyline, right? And I think that's something very American. Yeah, but I do want to add to that. I think that's also, um, sometimes people are assholes. And also our culture, like as a whole, doesn't leave room to be vulnerable. There isn't like room and time to 
say, I couldn't get out of bed because my grandma died two weeks ago and you can't go to work because um, the American workplace doesn't understand that. And so people have to take on that mindset. Like the number of people we know who have suffered immense losses and their bosses never know. And to me, you know, we talk about this in the series, but like the way that, and again, this also goes back to this like experience of like being human is messy and that we're, we are animals is that, you know, America is also one of the few places that doesn't have any sort of bereavement leave whatsoever. Same way we have no maternal or parental leave. In what universe are we supposed to pretend that making a baby or having a family is not going to impact the rest of your lives? We also think that way about sickness or grief. Like these are things that our culture doesn't really leave room for. And so I think as individuals, one way to like protect against that is like also pretend that it doesn't have impact on us. Like I, early in the pandemic, and this is wild to say, because now this baby that we know is no longer nursing, but like in our business, our employees would be on Zoom pumping. And like, Sometimes they would be like, happened to be just out of the Zoom camera, but other times it just wasn't. And like, that was okay. And that's a culture that we have really nurtured among like our team. Mm. But that's the kind of thing where like American workplaces don't want to see that, right? They want to pretend that women are not like bursting or dying to like pump milk (laughs) out of their bodies because we don't, we want to pretend that people aren't animals, you know? But I think that that is all like, tied to this thing about being like, we want to shield away from all of like the messiness of actually just being human, getting through the day, whether it's like emotional messiness or vulnerability or like physical needs. And it just doesn't work. It's not serving any of us. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So as an immigrant to the States and in these moments of your own losses and griefs, you mentioned that you come from a place where you appreciate the grief practices that your community has culturally. When you're here, how do you find community here? or How do you bring those cultural practices with you? Or has that been challenging in any way? It has been challenging. And I'll give you an example of something that happened recently. A year ago, my husband's parents, both of them passed away in a span of nine days. Mm, And he had to go back and I couldn't because my daughter was in school and there was a lot happening. And for him, taking that trip back and spending time with his extended family and siblings was such a relief in a way. He spent five weeks there and it was a collective action rather than individual grieving their parents. And for me, it was so challenging and alienating because whatever emotions I was feeling, I had known them for 20 years. For me, it was, you know, I was sitting in a room mourning the death of my in-laws alone. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. really verbalize it beyond speaking to my siblings or my parents. And in that moment, I realized how difficult it is to grieve in America, especially in the context of death of a loved one or physical loss, because people around you move on, right? And they don't even understand how long the grieving process could be for an individual or for a family. Mm. So I do think that America is not catered 
to grieving, especially grieving a loved one or a physical loss versus grieving time lost or job opportunity. I think America is more, I guess, attuned to grieving anything that's materialistic or may have some mm-hmm. monetary value attached to it. America is able to metabolize grief for that mm. better versus human or living creature. That's such a beautiful example. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm just so sorry that that happened, how much pain that must have caused. And I think that's precisely kind of what we've been trying to identify and think through. Like actually the realness for your husband of going to be with family. And I I can't remember who said this, Amy, in the show. um, One of our guests said, part of having somebody tell the story is a reminder that you were not the, like being in community with people talking about the person who who died. Yeah. Reminds you and everybody that you all loved the same person. Mm. And even if it was different facets of it, that is an important part of grieving and not getting to do that in person with people because Zoom is a very, very, it's better than when we couldn't see family at all, but it's, it's a really like not the same. And it's a poor proxy for all of that because all of the in-betweenness where you laugh about something silly that they did or all of those experiences of just being with people who also cared for and loved somebody as opposed to having to explain to, you know, friends in New York, well, here's what, they were so great this way. Sometimes my mother-in-law drove me nuts in this way. Like it's too much explaining of somebody. And I think that that is particularly, again, as mashups, as immigrants, as children of immigrants, we have the opportunity, as we often do, to widen the aperture to like help Americans, which we are, but see ourselves more clearly. Like this isn't, doesn't have to be this Mm -hmm. way. Like we know there's another way to be. And have you gotten to go back since then? I haven't still, which really bothers me, but I'm hoping Mm. to go next year. And Rebecca, you bring up such an important point. This is exactly what my husband said. He said it was so comforting to sit with extended family members and their siblings and talk about them. So when he came back, he didn't want to interact with anybody here. And we do have a huge community of people that we know and we hang out with. And he was like, I just cannot verbalize or articulate what I am feeling because they don't know my parents enough Mm -hmm. or they don't know who they were. So for me, being in Pakistan and sharing that experience with people who knew them, who loved them, is far more rewarding in a way than, you know, experiencing it here, which is ironic because, as you said, we are Americans as well and we do have a life here that we've built. And yet there are parts of our identity and experiences that we always go back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I think was really profound for us was thinking about ancestral grief and migratory grief and the grief that comes with leaving a place. And both Rebecca and I were born in the States. Our, Our parents were immigrants. And I would love to know from you, Sadia, like how... Like you're the parent in this generation. Like you're you're our parents as far as like your your immigration story. And so do you patient zero. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something 
and again, thinking of perspective and point of view, ours is very much in looking at what in some ways, like kind of our ancestors were unable to metabolize because they were so deep in survival mode and so busy building this life for us that I wonder, you know, as somebody who is both more our peer, but also the immigrant that is here doing the life building and laying the foundation for your kid, how do you experience or do you experience that grief in the same way? Amy, this is a great segue into question I was <laughs> going to ask you guys. <laughs> so, uh It's interesting because for me, as I was listening to your series, I see my immigration journey as being more privileged in many ways. So there are people who escape war or poverty and their immigration journey is so different because as immigrants, we exist on this vast spectrum of humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I came to the U.S. more out of want and to experience the American experiment that it is for adventure rather than out of need. So my initial few years were more like, ah, you know, this is fun. This is enjoyable. Although I missed my parents and my family, my culture, food, everything. And now when I look back, there are remnants of my culture or my life in Pakistan that really speak to me or that I miss experiencing grief being one experiencing connection with extended family members is something that I think I've lost forever. It could never be the same because mm. I am not that person anymore either. I have evolved. Pakistanis have moved on. Mm -hmm. When I came to the U.S., I was 100% Pakistani and now I am part American, part Pakistani. So I'm a nomad and I don't know what I think. And I may be able to critique others and call them American, but I am part of this society as much. And I have internalized a lot of habits and norms that I critique on my podcast. So it's the mixed feeling. And the question I had for both of you was, I do fear that there is this trope of traumatized immigrant. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids of immigrants like yourself see their parents through that vantage point. I am curious to know, how do we acknowledge the alienation and the sadness and homesickness that comes with immigration and yet not box immigrant experience into that traumatized version only? Mm. It's a great question. And I would say, even just in this grouping. These three ladies here, we have the variety of experience, right? So my mom came to the U.S. from El Salvador, but she came for schooling in the right. U.S. So similar privileged experience. Her mother sent her siblings to the U.S. for schooling because the schooling wasn't adequate in El Salvador for them. But by the time my mom, my mom was like, I love it here. Why are you sending me away? So There was some loss for her on that. It wasn't her choice per se, but it's not the same as like escaping persecution. Right. But my grandparents escaped persecution and that's how they ended up in Latin America. You know, so in the last 100 years, my family has done this, you know, two and a half times, right? So yeah. there's layers that I'm only realizing now And I, I also am not interested in like diagnosing everyone with trauma. Yeah. Because if everything is trauma, what is trauma? But I think understanding that, oh, that presentation of cash hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> 
some of the things that we do that are like, you know, when the pandemic started, I was like, mom, I took out this much money from the bank. She was like, yeah, that's not enough. I need more. (laughs) You know, this is like, this is like my husband who's, you know, many generations American. He's like, why are you like hoarding all these things? And I was like, we don't know. It's the same after Trump was elected. You know, we had the same, Amy and I, Amy, we joke, she got... I got LASIK. Just in case (laughs) we go to the camps, she doesn't need glasses. (laughs) And I was just like hoarding cash. So these are things that we we joke about, but we also know are reflective of these experiences. And, And Amy can speak to her own family experience, which is very different. And I think one of the things when we started the Mash Americans 2013, the thing that we understood was, oh, being first generation, even if our mashups are different, there is a lot in common. And that is what we have been exploring for 10 years. You know, my parents are like, I'm just engaging with the way they parented me and maybe making tweaks that are appropriate. But I feel that I was parented beautifully. I love my family's traditions and the way I am in relationship to them. I'm literally recording this from my dad's office, which is a half a mile from my house and a half a mile from his house because we now live in, you know, the shtetl <laughs> in LA, made our own tiny, we've like gone back around again. And sometimes I'm like, dad, I think I need to like talk to other people in person. <laughs> so I say this just to point out that, yes, I'm not trying to pathologize my parents and I don't want to like, talk out of school about my mom or diagnose things. But I do think that there are things that I'm realizing are inherited that came from multiple layers of ancestral grief. I just read this news article about a cemetery in Germany, a Jewish cemetery, that basically because there was some construction happening, they were able to, you know, this cemetery is, let's say, 800 years old. Again, just a random cemetery, just to give context again, how new America is. And they were talking about genetics, like they were learning about Ashkenazi Jewish genetics from these bones, how lucky to get to learn from science. And I thought I had this moment of loss because I thought, oh, my family existed somewhere for I don't even know how long. And in one generation, don't speak any German, have never been to Germany, in fact, have a like deep undercurrent of distrust. And yet, like, I also do things where I'm like, I'm learning now are very like German Jewish things to do, even the way I am about time and control, you know? <laughs> so I just think that these are things that are being expressed and it's beautiful to learn them and enriching. And also we are an imprint of the loss or the hole that we didn't realize was there because we are decontextualized. And I think that's something that Linda Tai, who talks about ancestral grief, was so beautifully articulated. It's not always about a person or a thing. And she's had a particularly traumatic immigration and refugee story, but it's something where you don't always know what that hole is because it's just always in the air. So that's a long answer to say, yes, agreed, (laughs) but there's different versions. I love it, Rebecca. And the way you break it down, it's incredible. And you're absolutely right. As an immigrant parent, I want my kids to understand what we are passing on to them, are passing down without speaking for me. Mm. And that's where I feel it gets tricky. But you're absolutely right. That's how you should approach it. I love it. Just to add to the perspectives here, and this is why we can't ever paint like an immigrant experience as one, is that I'm not interested in any trauma narratives or 
these like tragic must escape to the great American promised land. And also my parents were very traumatized and were like war babies. So like mm-hmm. it is all things, you know? Absolutely. They grew up, they were young kids during the Korean War. My dad was a refugee. They lived in kind of abject poverty and then they immigrated here. And then I grew up rich in a fancy town. Yeah. And also, Amy, we did years ago our 23andMe as an exercise, many years ago on our show. We talked to somebody from 23andMe. One of the things, like when Amy did hers and there was a lot of Japanese, (laughs) you know, in her genetic makeup. This is public. We put it out before. (laughs) I'm not exposing anything. And, you know, then you start to be like, huh, what happened? You know, or like, oh, well, you know, your father was in a Japanese internment camp in... Mm. Korea, you know, like that's not what happened. But these things kind of pop out sometimes when you don't realize that they will. You're like, oh, we've been joking. My body keeps the score. Like our bodies are telling these stories. And sometimes we don't know when those stories are going to, you know, emerge. And that's part of why we're like 10 years into this work. And it's still like exciting and joyful. And we're evolving as parents, as our kids are old. I mean, we have a what your child will have, as Amy said, like, you know, that feeling when your kid is like, oh, I'm half. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not, you're a whole thing. You're like, you're, you know, and and then that's my own shit that I've projected onto my, you know, these things are, will constantly, in my house right now, it's the Hanukkah Christmas situation, <laughs> but you know. Oh, we could do another episode on <laughs> celebrating holidays. And oh my gosh. I don't know. I'm a terrible mom, maybe. Probably. We don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we do Thanksgiving, we do 4th of July, but you know, Christmas is like, mm, I don't know. I mean, it's Jesus. It's like you can pretend it's not religious. But... Yeah, but it is religious, right? Yeah. And I feel like both my girls are going to celebrate Christmas once they have their own homes and they're, you know, mm-hmm. which is fine. As an immigrant mom, there is some part of me and my culture that I have to give up to make room for and space for American identity within myself and adjacent. And that's Mm. a struggle, but I do it every single day. Slowly, I think I'm becoming somebody else, Mm -hmm. but I like it. I like the mashup. This was so good and I'm so glad we were connected. I knew this would be an incredible conversation and I hope you guys come back on Immigrantly. But before I let you go, I have this one question that I ask everyone. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence, phrase or a paragraph, how would you do that? (laughs) Okay, in a phrase or a paragraph, I'd say some cool ideas, lots of potential, needs work. (laughs) I love it. That sums it up. (laughs) I would say it's basically a one word encapsulation of everything Rebecca just said, but possibility. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amy and Rebecca. This was so good. Thank Thank you. you so much. This was a delight. What a fun conversation. In fact, let me rephrase it. What an introspective, important, real, messy, fun conversation. So if you are processing grief or if you don't know how to define it, 
I hope today's episode was able to synthesize some of that for you. But remember, it's a very intrinsic, elemental feeling that is part and parcel of human existence. So whatever way you experience grief or you share it with others, it's okay. It's your truth. Keep it that way. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Yudi Liu. Our editor for this episode is Hazik Ahmed Farid. And our editorial review was also done by Yudi Liu. Until next time, take care. New Jersey is providing truly historic tax relief. Living in New Jersey is about to become more affordable under the new Anchor Property Tax Relief Program created by Governor Murphy and the legislature. The state will soon deliver over $2 billion in tax relief to more than 2 million homeowners and renters. Eligible New Jerseyans can receive up to $1,500. Apply today. Even if you didn't qualify under the previous program, you may now. The deadline is February 28th. Visit anchor.nj.gov.